So I have a photograph. In a way that the forensic laboratory would have a photograph of a crime scene, this is taken through the windscreen of a car and it's a dashboard. And in the dashboard, I see some soil, some gravel, and then one, two, three, four, five pots of cacti still in their pots. And even though the dashboard seems to be stationary, these are on their side, rolling around, and some of them are half out of their pots. These, this particular dashboard had been planted up by me a couple of months ago on this very podcast. The plants I put in are now gone, and there's a whole new one, a whole load of new... Oh, and the other thing, and this is really important, I was given a slap <laughs> because I was getting soil and gravel and... In the ventilation system. Which you did. Every time I turned it on, now but I look, get whacked. Aiden, look. Can you see that piece of gravel there going into the ventilation system? Oh. Explain yourself. This is cacti carnage. Um, I had to go to the UK, and as a result of going over there on Brexit and what have you, can't bring plants back and forth. So I had to dismantle your beautiful cacti garden before I went over. And... As a result, I had Explain to Explain the fact that you couldn't bring them over as a result of Brexit because you're not allowed... I don't have a PhD in... I don't know what you need a PhD in to understand Brexit. Well, Farage talk. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not one of them. Um, basically, as far as I understand it, you're not allowed to bring plants back and forth anymore from the UK. And for the last hundred and probably thousand years, you've been able to do that. But now it's not a thing because of Brexit and because of new rules and they're not in the EU and what have you. And it makes actually it's a point about gardening. It makes people sourcing plants from there very difficult because until now we were using that as a place to get plants from all the time. And we can still get plants from mainland Europe, but we can't get plants via the UK anymore, which is a bit annoying because the UK has some of the best nurseries in the world. Yes, anyway. so you are going to replant. You obviously went to my shop. I went to your shop. To buy yeah. five cacti. You've left out the succulents this time for whatever reason. Because they died in the 60 degree heat. Gardening is great, but gardening in the summertime is very different to gardening in the wintertime. If you had planted that in October, they probably would have been cool. But it, well, we had a heat wave. You know, we're only out of They're bloody cacti <laughs> and succulents. Yeah, but they're, they're designed for heat waves. Not they live in deserts. Yeah, they live so in places warm. where it's very hot during the day and very cold at night. Well, they were dying. Because you didn't look after them. Well, I didn't water them because I didn't think it was necessary. Anyway, I learned a lot from it and I've replanted them with the species that are more appropriate this time. Aidan, can I just tell you that all plants, bar none, all plants need water. Yeah. And he didn't water them. Uh, he's a gardener. I thought, yeah, okay. Uh, I've learned a lot from this. <laughs> and that's all I can say. So and this time around, hopefully, it'll work Now you're letting these plants roll around. By the way, I took this picture a few days ago. Are they planted? No. <laughs> they're lolling around as if they've been <laughs> drinking. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and gravel is going down the air vent. I just haven't got round to it. And then, did you notice a second ago when I slapped him? He looked very offended and very hurt by that. Imagine. Yeah. Imagine. Well, you had no reason to slap me. I had every reason to slap you the first time. He's right. just done exactly the same as I did. Oh, yeah, it was you that hit Dermot that time. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, he was putting the gravel into the vent. But uh, you've just done it. No, well, that's probably your bloody gravel from the time you were doing it. Look, the evidence is there. You that had it's half gonna a bag be... in. That's too... Look, you're, you're even stuffing whole cacti down the air <laughs> vent. When you turn on the fan, does it spray back yes. at you? Yes. Every time. So I have a little reminder every time I put on the heater. If it's a cold morning, <laughs> I don't forget gardening anymore. So thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome to Dirt with Dermot and Paul. Dirt, a Go Loud original. Go out! Go out! <laughs> uh, I'm sorry for hitting you, Dan. You looked really upset. Well, I was just in shock. I, just want, I love the idea of being able to hit you and have no retaliation. <laughs> well, you deserve it, you f- Oh, All right then. So there's holes in the whole gardening um, theory. Who'd have thought? Well, it just doesn't work. Well, it does work. But in the summertime, I mean, that car did get up to 60 degrees. You park in a sunny spot. You don't open the windows because who opens the windows when you're not in the car for two but or like, three hours? Doesn't that happen in the Grand Canyon or wherever else they have cacti? Yeah, but they have humidity. Even in, a van doesn't really have humidity. Cars are, you know, designed a little bit differently. They do get slightly damp, but... 
They just it's a different environment. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean maybe if I was to look after it a little bit more. This time round I go into water. Them. Maybe if you were to look after it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never gave me the materials to look at I need a spray can, which I think is important. You're a gardener. If you look in the back of your van, <laughs> it's just full of equipment. And do you know what he does? He comes to my house and he if there's any rubbish, he unloads it onto the driveway. <laughs> yes, actually I did do this. And my wife says to me, what's that on the drive? Let's pause. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> I forgot about them, actually. Yeah, I did do that not that long ago. But uh-huh. because it's Paul, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Dirt with Dermot Gavin and Paul Smith, a Go Loud original. I want to talk a little bit today about a garden that really influenced me when I was growing up. I grew up in suburban Dublin in a very kind of when the city was grey and dour and pebble dashed and there was no hope in the 1970s and the 1980s and we had a very busy household, five kids, uh, parents who believed in their kids studying and working hard and all that sort of thing. All in all it was a little bit joyless. It was a little bit joyless for me. There was one element, a few elements of joy in a local park that I loved escaping to, Bushy Park in Terenure, which had an amazing woodland that I would get lost in. So the power of nature was there. I also liked, even from an early age, the built environment. So I was fascinated by my dad and my uncle Chris arriving to lay a lawn, to plant cherry trees in the middle of the lawn and to plant hydrangeas from cuttings, which is what you did back. There was no such thing as landscapers or garden designers, especially in the suburbs back then. There was one garden, and only one garden locally, that really cheered me. It was on the Ballyboden Road. And it's a garden that I would never forget. It was a small garden of a council house and a really small site. But the thing that really struck me back then in the 70s and 80s was that this garden was full of ornamentation and colour. It had gnomes to beat the band. And... Every car slowed down passing it and it was on a main kind of route. It was before the big ring road around Dublin. So it was on one of the main routes out of the city. And my parents were quite annoyed by this garden that it was in the locality, as far as my memory goes. Um, And if we had any visitors, they wouldn't go take that uh, route. But old kids seemed to love it. And I'm going to show you, Paul, a picture of it now. I'm going to show you a picture that I took when I became interested in garden design. Will you describe what you can see? Wow. Um, it's it's a mess, but it's a, it's a beautiful mess. <laughs> uh, so there looks to be like a copper-coloured roof, uh, as you say, like a terraced house wedged in between others, uh, you know, very 1970s railing. And then it's just like, I don't know what it is. It's like Disneyland meets... Willy Wonka meets sort of a uh, nightmare on Elm Street. Thing. It's all a bit like, what is happening here? So there's everything. Mad. There's a Victorian lampstand, there's a wishing well, there's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, there's an Irish thatched cottage, there's a gaily painted Buddha, there's a concrete Yorkshire Terrier, there's plastic roses, there's hanging baskets, all in a very small space, it's all in a really small space. So there are a few <laughs> plants which we'll see in a, a moment. What fascinated me, though, about this garden, as I was a child, was just a colour, impact. It stood out and it was a piece of joy. It also, the separation between what the parents thought of it and what youngsters thought of it was really defining for me because when you got to a certain age, you weren't meant to like this um, really anymore. As I grew older, as I kind of went to school and went to college and began to study garden design, this garden then represented something different to me because what I realised was that the garden was in Ballyboden, which is in Rathfarnham, which is a suburb of Dublin. Dublin is a small city in a small country at the very edge of Europe. And yet crammed into this space, somebody had collected ornamentation. Each of these ornaments evolved somewhere, were designed somewhere. And represented something. So garden design and design in general is an evolving process. And there might be 2,000 years of garden design in this small plot. 
Now, the person who designed the garden, I was sure when I took the photograph, I didn't know anything about them, but I'm sure they bought these ornaments for their instant impact. But garden design and garden style has emerged in so many different places around the world, in every place, indeed, around the world, for social, for religious, for political, or for aristocratic or spiritual reasons. And here we have somebody taking a little bit of this, a little bit of this in Disneyland, a little bit of uh, Oriental Zen, a little bit of Victorian England, Victorian London, and place it all in one tiny spot, no bigger than this small studio, for impact. And they could acquire all these things and use these things as a mishmash, which is valid in itself because it had it, it obviously for them created great joy and it had an effect on everybody who saw it. It stood out. What strikes me is that that your parents wouldn't bring guests that came, you know, uh, visiting you to see this place. I may have invented all that. It doesn't matter um, because never let the truth get in the way of a good story. But it seems that this must have caused all sorts of controversy in the neighbourhood and the neighbours must have hated it and it's so out there and it's so different but yet it's kind of, it's two fingers up to everybody else and maybe that wasn't the intention but it was obviously their passion, their joy and it created this space that divided opinion but Maybe that's what our gardens meant to divide opinion. Do great gardens divide opinion, or is absolutely? It, I think yeah. they they do, or they should, okay. because we shouldn't be accepting. Maybe we should question and learn from that. And opinions are challenging things because everybody has one, and in this multimedia age, we all feel we have a right to get our opinion and out there and broadcast it and whatever, however valid or however unthought true God imagine it may be that house nowadays imagine the well, Instagram now, that it would get now can I tell coverage. you something yes. can I continue the story so uh, I loved this house and I took that very blurred image on slide film way before back in the 80s when I began to teach a little bit about garden design what's a slide film a slide film was the way you used to have to do presentations oh. and uh, it's too don't, laborious don't to go into <laughs> And so I I took this picture and as my life changed, I ended up giving lectures about garden design from Moscow to Florida to London to China, wherever. And I would always start with this image because I felt the world of garden design was represented. And I would tell the story of this garden and growing up uh, near it. And then about five years ago, I was making a television series with a very um, a renowned gardener called Helen Dillon who had a garden in Sanford Road in Ranelagh, which was reputed to be. She's the daughter of, an, of a Scottish lord. Uh, uh, she's of a certain type, utterly brilliant as a plants woman, and, but quite volatile. You would fall out with her easily. And we had three weeks on the road, and we didn't fall out. I'd known her for years, but spending three weeks on the road, having breakfast together every morning, dinner together every night. And the last day of filming, I said, I was quite worried about this but I said to her Helen I wonder if you remember a garden in Dublin that was just jam-packed with colourful gnomes <gasps> oh she said darling I, not only do I remember it I went to try and find it last year and it's gone and I thought this was amazing that Helen would go and try and find which indicated to me she felt it was important and the following day I was back in Dublin and I went to find the garden and indeed there it was gone boo it's so boring bit of privet hedge a conifer in the middle of the lawn boo (laughs) which shows you how much you know the the garden that was there the interest and the joy and everything it gave and now when you put it back into another suburban plot it just blends in and you know the photograph you have there it's pink with a copper roof it just stands out in every way and now it's just blending in like any other house it's kind of sad so I did what anybody does, and I wrote to Ray Darcy. Who's Ray Darcy? Is he not Joe Duffy? You write to when you want to complain. Or were you complaining? I said, this is a photo of a garden <laughs> which I took around 1994. The house is located on the Ballyboden Road in Dublin, and as a kid growing up nearby, it fascinated me. It had an effect on everyone who passed it. It made some people smile. A few became annoyed by its eccentricity. 
Around the time I took this photograph, I have a vague memory of the lady who owned it being in the audience of the Late Late Show talking to Gayburn about her garden. I'm almost sure that they showed some footage and I think Dulux gave her a load of paint as a gift to celebrate the garden's vibrancy. For 20 years, I've used this image to start most presentation uh, presentations around the world. I introduce audience to the notion of a garden design by charting the amount of stuff that's been packed into such a small space to create an overall effect. The garden is sadly no more. It's been gone for many years, as I believe has the owner who created it. My image originally taken on a slide is blurred and slightly fuzzy. I can't make out all the stuff. So to further inform my lectures and help me develop a new project, I'm trying to track down more images or footage of it in its prime and stories of who created it and why. I'd love to find out where the ornaments went and see if any of them survived. So I went on so this to is talk Ray to Ray Darcy. You, okay, so he's a media personality in Ireland. And I went and I chatted to him then after that Whoa, so on the phone. And people sent in their photographs. So, Paul, do you want to describe what we're seeing now? It's, I think Aideen said earlier, it's like a Barbie house. It's absolutely the colours. It's just fantastic. And in these new photographs that a listener sent in, and I'm sorry I don't have the name of that listener, but I know I was given permission to use them because I wanted to use them for lectures. It, you can see what's there. So what are we looking at? Well, as you say, there's a Buddha sitting in the middle of the lawn in front of the little thatched cottage by the side of the ceramic poodle who is standing beside a gnome, which is to the left of a windmill, which on side of it is a plastic orchid, which comes down from lots of red geraniums, which look to be real, I think. Hard to know. Lots of bits of cones and there's a few more dogs and fences and all sorts. Oh, is that a... That's some religious paraphernalia. Oh, oh, what's that? huge thing up behind is that a parrot no, this is a that that's an old Chinese figure so that's from Chinese garden design oh. which could be a couple of thousand years BC isn't that really quite amazing you see the swan planter remember those planters were very oh you won't remember but these plastic planters were very very popular and you have these plastic in the shape of a swan with big plumage uh, begonias or something like that coming out of its back lots of dwarves uh, a pecan beak there um, it's just fo- uh, and oh no that's not what it's not a religious um, icon but you wouldn't know <laughs> well yeah, I'm sure people worship you, it too. You, you wouldn't know in this garden <laughs> would you poodles galore and there's hanging kind of baskets of with gold chain flowers. like a rapper would wear yeah 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 very uh, and very in very definitely plastic flowers it's a bit like that disenchanted movie that's been made uh, recently it's, it has that you know it is exact. it's a film set but it's yeah. not because it's a real life garden and you know some of these pictures that we now have are so unbelievably vibrant and I will put them on my Instagram um, so that you can have a look and what it represents to me so if we go back to that Chinese figure or the, the, the Buddha they would have evolved in a time and in a place for a reason they would have set the scene we can never understand why they were used we don't understand those tradition of garden designs it's easier to understand Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs that are also here fashioned from concrete and gaily painted but there's some stuff we understand because it belongs to our Americanized popular culture some we can't understand we certainly understand the thatch cottage from the quiet man era but isn't it amazing how it is a world of design of gardens of entertainment all come together in one plot and one of the images that was sent to me is people gathered around this side as if it's a shrine as if it's a Marian grotto because it did become famous and I'm sure as many people who loved it hated it she received the blessing of Gay Byrne because the lady Mrs Pegman who created this garden did appear in the audience on the Late Late Show because I remembered that as a kid and subsequently I found out that Shay Healy interviewed her on another programme a nationwide type programme about the collection of objects that she had in, in, in her garden and she was everything you would ex- expect I did get an email that we didn't read out on air at the time um, 
As a guy who lived locally, he said, our family lived behind Mrs. Pegman and knew her well. We're pretty steeped in the history of the place. The local GAA pitch is named for my great-uncle Frank Kelly and our grandfather, John Kearns, used to run the local grocery shop. So this is a guy who knows. This next paragraph is written without any full stops or commas. Her daughter still lives in that house, but when her mother died, she dumped all the poor gnomes over the wall and across the road into the river. They would have all drowned if Shay Kelly didn't rescue them, and he put them all back in her garden. But when Anne Pegman got home, she was so shocked, so she fucked them all back (laughs) on the river and told Shay Kelly that she didn't give a shit if they drowned or not, as she hated the little fickers. (laughs) What a legend. And it's actually fickers, not feckers. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, Gnomes is K-N-O-M-B-S <laughs> well, excuse me <laughs> uh, isn't that an amazing story and that is part of the heritage of Irish gardening and I have to say I love it because there is somebody who was unafraid of making a statement and took great joy and entertained and I think it is I've read other stuff online because from time to time it appears these images appear on Instagram and her nieces or grandchildren say look it's you know granny's garden again isn't this great and uh, and uh, whatever but the fact that Helen Dillon rated it as something of note and of something of importance and not in a sending it up type of way I think is important and actually it says an awful lot about Everything I've always known about Helen Dillon in terms of garden design. She is a Democrat and is not snobby about anything. And why would you be? I have a question for you. The garden is tacky, right? Which is probably why it... Uh, so tacky. You know, it's like when people put up Christmas lights at Christmas and try to outdo each other. Like, you like this because it's kind of two fingers to the convention of a nice garden? No. No. I don't. And maybe I'm in the minority who don't think the garden is tacky. I think it's really good design. Explain that. You can't just create something like that and have that effect. Nobody can just go and collect those stuff and put it in. The overall picture that she has created, all those ornaments came as concrete and she got her daughter or granddaughter to paint them and she set them wherever and there's all sorts of stories about them being nicked and even a story about somebody going to prison for nicking them and another story this may be an urban myth of one of the gnomes appearing in photographs uh, posted from all over the world you can't just create that collection she laid this out beautifully and if you go to an amazing Italian villa and see a grotto laid out with fabulous statues telling a story of the underworld or of Ulysses or whatever, Dante's Inferno or whatever. This is a version of that. This, I think, is a highly curated and very interesting and to me, what I say, beautiful, well-designed statement. The statement was a joyous one. And there is tacky and there's joy. And I think this is joy. And I think people are responding to the joy of the place. And I don't think it's tacky. And I think it might be just a little bit snobby to say it's tacky. No, I'm trying to put it in context for people who can't see it. (laughs) Uh, For me, it's very important. Like when you show that to people at the beginning of your presentation, it is because you know that they will think that's tacky and they're surprised you're using it. That's the impact it's having, right? Yeah, and I use the word taste and I ask people, I ask the audience, is it good taste or bad taste? And I go on then, explore that notion. Taste is a subjective thing, isn't it? Yes, of course. You know, and taste can be the enemy of design. So that's the point I'd like to make. And in latter years, I have also ended every lecture with that quote about the poor gnome has been fucked across the road into the river and she didn't care if they drowned or not because that leaves the audience laughing. So you, you start in an area, but it is the world of garden design in one spot. And it is the world of the world in which we inhabit that we sometimes forget that we live in a very prosperous Western democracy where some people 
can't afford to live in houses. And there are many, many issues, but we're still a relatively wealthy nation. We have time for hobbies. We like to entertain uh, 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 ourselves and we can acquire anything. And in the days of the Celtic Tiger, they went out and bought Jackie O's yacht, uh, Onassis' yacht and whatever. And they bought the biggest buildings everywhere in, you know, in New York or whatever to show where Paddy's, but we can do it. So we can acquire anything. So we're kind of in a new Victorian age of collecting right through because this was the time of loads of money this woman was collecting it used to be in big estate houses that you'd invite your aristocratic friends your neighbours who had the estate across the valley to dinner you'd all sit down for dinner the pineapple would be in the centre of the table and then after dinner you or maybe it was before dinner you'd go into the room of curiosities cases glass cases stuffed with objects that had been collected this is one of those glass cases stuffed with objects. So you can l- picture this on a... You can view this on a few different levels. You can view it as that joyous impact. You can view it as somebody who's a maverick who is not fitting in, who is, by definition, standing out. Or you can view it as I came to view it later in life as my wonder about the history of, in particular, garden design, but it could be the history of colour and how that's used. I can view it as a history of acquisition, tradition, and how that is accumulated and used. And maybe the end story is here of a maverick, because she was one. Still tacky as f- <laughs> 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 You're not allowed to do it. Not, no more profanities. Dirt, a go loud original. Oh, this is brilliant. What? This is brilliant because this has just come in. Do you want to read it? It's our question for the week. Okay. Why not? I haven't read it. So read it from the start. Hi, dear. I hope you're keeping well. No, it's, it's a question mark. I hope you're keeping well. Yeah. I'm currently listening to your podcast, which is great. I had a question hmm. that. A was hoping you might be it says AI I had a question that I was hoping you may be able to help with sorry if already answered on the podcast I've still to catch up on them all I have an area in our border that is full of roots from old shrubs and a couple of trees with all the roots it makes it difficult to dig and plant and not sure if what I plant is in the best position to grow with the roots underneath any tips that you may be able to offer is very much appreciated well Emer, I don't think we have covered that on the podcast we haven't though that's a great question yeah it's very good so over to Paul uh, <laughs> thanks. Um, it's a challenging one, actually. Uh, Emer, was it Emer? Emer, yeah. yeah. Uh, so you have a place like that, and it's always a little bit annoying because you can't really dig into it, and you it's can't so get the plants frustrating. You want and and like, when you Argh. do dig into it, you'll inevitably find that dust. the soil is dust. It's poor. It's it's spent because of that amount of roots. Those roots have been anchoring whatever the, the trees or shrubs are, but they've also been taking the moisture from around that area and the nutrients from that area. So it is a challenge that there are a few different answers to. If you can get out the roots, it's the best thing to do. And once you've got out those roots, that, that takes an awful lot of digging and it takes some pickaxe unusual garden tools like pickaxe, yeah. a pickaxe yeah. or mattox or something like that. Spending the time doing that, if you really want this border to be productive again, is important and the, then conditioning the soil the thing is when you condition the soil and you put that lovely compost and that new soil in the roots of those trees because they're still alive are going to go woohoo Christmas and well, they're going to grow into that new soil and we don't know years, that the roots of the trees are still alive because this could be a tree that died that the roots are still there possibly but the chances are if you're battling something like that it's a tree that's still alive and you just want to try grow around it so the best thing you can do is put in that fresh soil plant immediately water those things that you want in there get them established and then they will be able to fight it a bit but you'll always be fighting that it's kind of a firefighting exercise you're never going to be able to resolve the issue of roots because roots will always find their way to the good soil now if do. if the, the plant had died and the roots are dying that's a different issue for a while it might still be tough but in time those roots are going to break down yeah. and they're going to be of enormous benefit because they're going to be a habitat for all sorts of different creatures number one and they're going to break down and they're going to feed the soil so it's not all bad news no no 
Um, but definitely go out with your pickaxe and take away as much as possible. Not fun, but the only way to do it. And thank you for your question, Emer, which came in, as I say, as we were recording this episode of Dirt. Dirt with Derma Gavin and Paul Smith, a Go Loud original. I read an interesting article this week. And the basis of the article was this earl or something up in County Mead who has this thousand acre estate that he's inherited. The Badass Baron. The Badass Baron is his kind of nickname title that he goes by. And he talks about the fact that he's trying to rewild the estate and the controversy. I think he's even got death threats because he said, I want to rewild the estate. I want to let it go back to nature. I don't need to manage this in the way it's been managed before for hundreds of years because uh, just because we've done something for a long time doesn't mean it's always right. And it's a funny one. And it's such a divisive thing, this whole concept of rewilding. And you think, oh, what does rewilding have to do with a gardening podcast? But gardening by its very nature is the most ultimate control uh, in terms of, you know, you go into a natural space and you're controlling it to what you want it to do. And it's the very opposite of rewilding. In our own gardens, we're manipulating it to do, you know, we want to have our terrace in a sunny spot. We want this tree to grow in this particular place because it suits us. We are playing God kind of in the most uh, ultimate way in terms of our gardens. Yes, but rewilding is one of those triggering phrases, I find, especially in... It's a very trendy phrase, Remember what's happened in the last 18 months. The world has slowed down and people have become aware of our environment, whether the built environment, the natural environment or their garden environment that they've been they've created or they've inherited. Rewilding is really in its purest form. It's termed as the large scale restoration of ecosystems to the point where nature is allowed to take care of itself. That's really quite complex in itself. Rewilding seeks to reinstate natural processes and where appropriate, missing species, allowing them to shape the landscape and the habitats within. And the reason we do it is because across Europe and the entire world, we've lost massive amounts of native flora and fauna that are essential to keeping all these ecosystems alive. And it's basically the damage that we as human beings have done to the natural world. And we're trying to rewild the environment, correct some of the issues that we have created. Because some of the things like, you know, flooding and all these events that are terrible and horrible to see, but a lot of them are the direct result of what we as humans have done to the landscape, to the natural built environment, to everything. So, you know, we are our own worst enemies. We are the ultimate invasive species. And you can chart how these changes, it might have been the industrial industrial revolution, you know, the smog that was in London affecting people's health, weather, but the environment at large. It might be slag heaps. It might be the current issues, the deforestation of the Amazon, if we want to go far away, which is happening at the most alarming uh, rate. It might be, you know, Trump allowing people to drill for oil in pristine waters. Uh, and it might be decisions that governments make through mining natural resources. Or it might be people in California, in Nevada, in Arizona, wanting green lawns because they've, they see these as the ideal in terms of... Or it might be sending the love of your life a bouquet of flowers that has been grown in Ecuador yeah. where are in parts of it's Africa funny. where resources are very scarce. These resources are used um, for our benefit. mentioned the States there a lot. It's a great example here of the success of this in Jellystone National Park in the US as well that we've mentioned a good bit here. So wolves were hunted to extinction there pretty much at the start of the 20th century, uh, nearly gone. And as a result of that, their prey just went absolutely mad. And one of their main preys was the elk. So the elk is going to be a bigger beast. It's going to eat other stuff and it's going to clear large areas of foliage. Yes, uh, and the big thing that the elk did was they sort of overgrazed the land. They stopped things like trees actually reaching maturity. So aspen, uh, poplar and willow they were there all the time and they would grow fairly fast and they would have got up to maturity, but they didn't because the elks were here. That in turn meant that the songbirds that lived in those trees lost their habitat 
and then the beavers had no material for able to build their dams because there was no more trees and riverbanks then began to erode because there was no beavers to dam them up water temperatures began to rose without the natural shade of the trees and the loss of these wolves one little thing in Jellystone Park had this cascade effect which has caused huge problems and only by reintroducing them in 1995 that in 20 years since that they've began to notice all of these things have slowly went back to the way they were so in that you know it's a fairly short space of time relative to the time that we're on this planet but even that 20 year gap of putting these things back in all of a sudden there's now tree cover along the banks again the elk populations are lower the songbirds are back and things are just slowly starting to to go back to the way they should have been. And we're in that very interesting time, a period of history of humans on this earth where people are concerned about that. Obviously, some people have always been concerned about um, how we treat the environment, especially people who are, who are native to uh, particular areas and understand because they listen to the land and they observe and they live a slower life and they see. But I mentioned the Industrial Revolution. You can bring that right up to date with the tech revolution and the amount of energy that it, uh, we need to power cooling stations for all these data centres and everything like that. We are still doing it. At the same time, there's a new, there's an ever-growing movement of people who really care about the environment. This past year and a half has slowed down everything and has made a lot of people really think. And there's a, a very encouraging band of younger people who aren't so interested in acquiring stuff and are interested in looking after the environment. We also have political parties who are green in nature and we have a minister who not so long ago did propose bringing wolves back, growing lettuce in window boxes and bringing wolves back into Ireland onto the streets. What do you think of that? Is that really naughty stuff or does he have a point? It's probably a little bit of both because we're in a small island with a, you know, we don't have a very high population density. But uh, yeah, I guess you have to be some way pragmatic about this. And we have to realise that while it would be brilliant to bring back this, most of the land in this country is fairly intensively farmed and managed. And there aren't huge swathes like there are over in Jellystone National Park or indeed in the highlands of Scotland where they do this kind of uh, much better because there's very low population densities. We have a fairly regular population density all throughout uh, this island I think maybe less people over the west but even so there's you know most areas are farmed and there's farmhouses touch farmhouses and so on so on so on so I don't think that's going to be possible here but there are things you can do you know bringing wolves back obviously creates all sorts of issues because farmers then have issues with sheep being taken and all of this and uh, any of these things will come with problems it's not one solution it's going to be the answer to all of this and that's fine it's a bit more complicated, isn't it? And it is a bit more complicated. And a lot of people who are listening to us today would be gardeners, would have gardens, have that interest in the soil or the dirt. So what can we do as individuals in our plots or within our community spaces that can add up to make a meaningful difference to this idea of rewilding? It's habitat creation. Um, Habitat creation can be done in lots of different ways. You can put up a box to allow owls into your garden. Uh, I know there's lots of uh, birds are one of the ones we focus on. The buzzard has been reintroduced to great success in this country to the point that I now see buzzards down in Carlow all the time. And 20 years ago, the buzzard was on the brink of extinction here. So it can work really, really well. So if you're introducing buzzards, buzzards, you need habitats and you need food. So one of the first thing that I would say is go native. Get as many native plants which grow in the wild into your garden as you can. Typical plants might include foxglove, trees and shrubs which are good nectar sources such as willow and ivy. You can go and find a list of plants on Ireland's wildlife website. Um, yeah, that's a great start. Uh, the other thing you can do is just a little less in your garden. So if you have a big, long, narrow garden, and not everyone does, some people only have tiny gardens, but even a pile of sticks that you prune off of a shrub or something, leave them underneath the shrub that you've pruned them from and just leave a habitat there. That creates a little bug hotel and place for hedgehogs to sit That's in. right. You it's know, a- it's all about just that little less tidiness. In it's all about embracing the mess. And that's yeah. all about how we perceive things. Once you look at a pile of leaves at home, as a home for a hedgehog or a dead branch as food for beetle larvae, you'll realise that there's beauty in that mess and it's doing good. 
Yeah, so it's not all about having to get wolves and reintroduce them back to Connemara. It's about doing the little things in your garden that, you know, this year in particular, as you drive around the city, you see wildflowers and wildflower habitats and things that they call now manage for wildlife. These signs come up everywhere and it's brilliant because that message is slowly coming through and once it's in, you know, the councils have it, people will drive past and they'll see it every day and it will become embedded, embodied into our kind of, you know, that's what you're meant to do in these areas. And if you're considering planting a tree, plant a native tree if you have the room. Or make the choice, you know, according to the space you have. Native trees have the greatest benefit to our wildlife because they evolve together. So consider things like silver birch, roan, hawthorn, elderberry, holly, yew, or one of your favourites, crabapple. And actually, all of the varieties that are a little more bred are also great. You know, the ones uh, like Crataegus Paul Scarlet and the Rudolph uh, crabapple and all those ones that are maybe a little bit more bred than the wild cousins are also great because they're very, very closely related and they give you a bit more than just a wild plant in the garden. And really, whether you're interested in this or not interested in this, please don't use pesticides because they're designed to kill insects. We're putting toxic chemicals all over our gardens when we use pesticides or indeed fungicides uh, in in some cases and it really is awful it does no good for the environment so be less um, look for less perfection when it comes to gardens and also spread the message let people know what you're doing if you're letting your if you're not cutting the grass and we've often talked about that on this podcast and in other places tell people why that in allowing the grass to grow you're letting the seed bank, which is in the ground, flourish. You're letting all those inv- individual um, plants produce flower, even grassy plants produce pollen. Um, and all of those things will encourage the insect life, the moth life, the butterfly life, the bee life that we need for a connected infrastructure. Yeah, and just because you're doing that doesn't mean that you're not gardening in the correct way or you're, you know, being lazy. You're just gardening in a new way, in a different way, and there's nothing wrong with that. And as long as you're prepared to tell people who come in and go, why haven't you tidied up this area of the garden? And you can still have an amazing looking garden and you can still have all of the things you love and you can still have non-native plants. It's not that you just have to grow these things. Uh, A few of these things in your garden will really help. And talk to your local representative too because Paul doesn't have 200,000 acres in Scotland or Wales that I know of. Yet. Yet. And I don't have. Yet. But we do have people that we elect to positions whether locally, nationally or into Europe and let them know that these type of things rewilding in vast areas uh, are important to you and use any of those tips to start it in your garden and let people know what you're doing and why you're doing it. Dirt, a Go Loud original. What's on my mind this week is something that's very close to home for me. I was talking earlier on about growing up in the 70s and 80s in Dublin and in Ireland and in Britain and maybe further afield, but you know, this is where I've spent time. We have a, a habit of negativity and pulling ourselves our families and each other down a little bit and not allowing people to reach for the stars or fulfilling their potential. And I think... You're talking about the Irish begrudgery. Yeah. It's in our DNA. Yeah, I'm... I'm reluctant to use those terms because I think begrudgery exists in many different places in many different forms. And I think you're... Maybe it is in our DNA but maybe there's a new generation that won't stand for that. And it might be begrudgery or it might be being conditioned by maybe hundreds and hundreds of years of knowing your place. I often use this example of walking past Trinity College with my mum when I was knee-high to a grasshopper and looking in there and she said, oh, that's not for people like you and me because it was a Protestant university, the charter given by Queen Elizabeth I to the city to set up this university and we should not think about going in there because you had to know your place. And I never knew my place and I don't know why I never knew my place but I had dreams and ambitions and things that I wanted to do and I was driven by a love of plants, a love of gardening and a love of design. And the status quo didn't fit with me and I wanted to go places and do things to satisfy myself, to fully explore the creative thing that really fueled me. 
And a few things happened along the way, and they all had an effect on me. I did a garden at a Chelsea Flower show in 1994, and I ended up on the Late Show. And immediately after, in the in the coming months, I noticed that people, friends, weren't my friends anymore, or college mates weren't calling me anymore. And certainly there was a gathering every Christmas of our year from college, and it happened without me. And a friend told me afterwards, oh, the feeling is you've gone above your station by going on the Late Late Show and talking about a garden at the Chelsea Flower Show. You're <laughs> not meant to do that. So, you know, subtly pull you back to us, to the crowd, because you know, you should know your place. And that, it upset me at the time, not enough to stop me doing what I was doing. Whatever my motivation or reason was, it 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 upset me. And then when I continued on that journey, along the years, people have tried to put me in my place. And the really upsetting one was when I went over to England and became somebody in England, became somebody in my industry in England. And I was giving a talk at a show at Earl's Court and two garden designers, two of my peers in the UK. And it was the keynote address for a conference of the Garden and Landscapers Design Association. And two members of the parallel Irish group, the GLDA, were there, the Garden and Landscapers. They were, they were over there. And my speech went down very well. And it was very funny because... You know, I was at the height of my game. I, I was telling the crowd that I had this car outside the, you know, uh, la, not la, who had given it to me. Jaguar had given it to me and it was a convertible. I didn't even know what it was. I had to run out and tell them <laughs> and find out. It was a bloody convertible thing with red leather seats. And I was top of my game driving around London as a landscaper with concrete and plants in the boot and uh, whatever. And everybody thought this. And I genuinely didn't know what the make of the car was. Anyway, I got to a reception after this uh, event with all these people and the two Irish lads came over to me and they said, one of them said, while the other stood beside him nodding, you know, personally we think you're great, but there's a lot of bad feeling about you back home. Isn't that extraordinary? That's mad. That was (laughs) mad. And I knew it was mad at the time and I just looked at them and smiled and agreed with them and, you know, got away as soon as I, I could. And then as I've gone on to do gardens at the Chelsea Flower Show, people have tried to put me in my place and people have tried to let me know where I come from. And blah, And I, I did a garden in 2016 and there was another garden designer called James Basson who was winning all the gold medals around him. And he came over and I was standing beside Helen Dillon and he told me while we were still building the garden how much he disliked our garden was, and I wouldn't react to him because I was embarrassed. We, he was building his garden, I was building mine. Was he the first person to let me know that they didn't like my garden? I said, yes. He said, good, and walked away. And that was another, um, you know, we'll keep you in your place. And more recently, somebody has done this about Paul, and they've written to me to tell me, to instruct me, stop promoting Paul. And the message I got was, stop promoting Paul. Jimmy Blake and Arthur Parkinson are the real deal. What does that mean? And whoever is doing these things, and whoever is trying to pull down me, or anybody else, just stop. Be nice. And encourage. Because we'll all benefit from somebody who rises. That's my rant. Well, you're kind of hitting on what's very topical at the moment, which is sort of online bullying. I know that person, you know, wasn't saying it publicly. It was a direct message to you, was it? And you know, I'm not defending it or anything. But we have become very used to insulting each other online. Like Twitter is, I'm so close to, oh yeah, I work in the media. I keep it on my phone. I'm so close to deleting as an app because well, it is such a hateful Hateful I place. don't go near it. Well, I don't look at it. As far as social media is concerned, but you it? know, it'll just move to something else. It'll be some other uh, app. Yeah. You know. Well, it has. I think we've managed to control that on Instagram because if anybody says boo, we just block them. And well, that's one method of control. It doesn't necessarily. Well, it, it is because it's a voice you don't have to hear anymore, and you can silence that voice by silencing that voice. You build your own bubble. 
but just be nice. It's it's as simple as that. What you know, this particular person who said that about Paul was somebody I plucked from nowhere and tried to promote and wrote to him and said, you've won a gold medal at Bloom or something like that and I like what you did and then I gave a chance with something and this is what you get. Wow. I know. And it wasn't a, it was stop, this was the start and the end, stop promoting but it was an instruction to me. I happen to think that Paul is okay. And he's a very good communicator. And I happen to think he's been very kind in terms of the time that he has given over during lockdown to help people with their garden. And I think he's talented. So I'm not going to stop promoting Paul. And hopefully soon he'll start promoting me. (laughs) (laughs) You've made it now, Paul. You've threatened somebody or somebody feels threatened by you. Well, he threatened them. Well, I haven't threatened anybody. I'd just call it out. Because we haven't done that. We haven't called it out in the past. And people feel they can be hide behind these things. Though I haven't named this individual. Oh, well, actually, I have. Not here. Um, <laughs> but I th- they know who they are. Well, what's the point of it? And you might feel, we all feel these little... You, you know, grievances or these little jealousies or these little things in life. But actually, the only thing to do is, you know, grow yourself and understand yourself that they're not healthy feelings to have in any situation. And if you get to a place that you can... And we're all, everybody listening to this, every every single person listening to this has the opportunity to help or do something for somebody. And it's much more pleasurable to offer some help or to recognise somebody than it is to put somebody down. So please. You can respond if you like, Paul. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to say. Yeah. That's fine. Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> we'll leave it there, so. Dirt with Dermot Gavin and Paul Smith. A Go Loud original. Do you know what I did after recording that segment about the Gnome Garden? I do. And it's fucking awful. <laughs> it's not that awful. So, Paul and myself were last week, last weekend, going down to Kerry to arrange our garden festival. And we passed this shop in Abbeyfield. Yeah. And outside was the most wonderful, if that's what you call them, selection of gnomes I've ever seen. Well, very tacky selection of gnomes, let's be honest. And some very questionable gnomes with their pinkies out. Yeah, yeah. And for us, even, that was a little bit much, you know. It was, because they were kind of porno gnomes, and there's no other way to put it. Anyway, I bought one or two that weren't porno. What they are, though, is tacky as f***. <laughs> <laughs> They're, they're tacky as foxia, and we'll explain that on next week's episode. We'll also explain about a big garden party in Morocco, your pet peeves, and for some reason we have a parenting conundrum. So join us on Dirt with Dermot and Paul on the Go Loud app. And we drop every Monday. See you then. <laughs>